Hello, everybody, and welcome to a very special sideshow of Carnival personnel. This is all about the hit 1981 movie, Arthur, starring the incomparable Sir Dudley Moore. We might be off to a bad start. I don't know if he was ever named Sir <laughs> Arthur. <laughs> this is Joe, by the way. I'm sorry, this is Jacques. And uh, Joe... Thank you for doing uh, this. This is a half-hour self-indulgence, man. This whole podcast is self-indulgent, man. Don't worry. Uh, But you gave me the heads up a couple weeks ago that, you know, HBO has some free movies going right now. And Arthur being one of them, it is still one of my favorite movies, although it doesn't hold up incredibly well. <laughs> we'll get into it. Let's get into it. This is going to be all about Arthur, not Arthur 2, and not Arthur with Russell Brand. Although, I guess that wasn't a terrible movie, but it was no, kind of... I, I, kind I of, liked it. Yeah. Well, and, and, and Arthur 2, um, it was a movie. Yes. <laughs> it was seven years later, whatever. But um, yeah, let's let's get into it. How much has Arthur changed your uh, perspective on alcoholism? Go. Uh, you know, I... It's funny because we always talk about, well, how did everybody in the 40s, 50s, 60s not smoke? Like, like every, like children's cartoons, all, literally children's cartoons, everybody smoked in the cartoons. Yes. Especially Tom when he was a cowboy. Tom Cat. Right. Yeah. Right. But what, what, what everybody did for smoking for 50 years. Arthur did with drinking in one fantastic movie. There's not a scene. Well, no, you correct me before. There's there's very few scenes where it's not like he is drunk. He's drunk and holding a drink in his hand. (laughs) (laughs) And just from the entire and how fun loving he was. Uh, Yes, he was a he was a person crying out who had a lot of pain, Joe. But. God damn it, did he mask it well with some pretty great comedy and alcoholism. It was my first viewing of Arthur, and I'm 42 years old. I was three when this movie came out, four maybe, and I'd never watched I didn't have, like, cable growing up. And this is also, like, this was an adult movie. Like, it was a grown-ups movie. Like, it dealt with grown-up issues. It didn't involve uh, a ghost or time travel, so I wanted nothing to do with it as a child. Uh, it was just about a you know a, a guy who was drinking, and I think I'd see commercials for it when I'd go to like my cousin's house who had HBO, and I would see like oh there's a movie with the, the, here's Dudley Moore I I know him from the Santa Claus movie that came out in 1985. He was the the head elf. That's how I know Dudley Moore. Um, I didn't great. I didn't watch Bo Derek's Ten where he you know I think it's Dudley Moore is probably like I guess breakout American hit right? Yeah, he was one of those guys who uh, you know big. Big and, and, and just the music scene, the composing scene, you know, and the acting scene, you know, both stage and theater in England all through the sixties and seventies. But yeah, it was it was ten that was, you know, such a such a pop culture like flashpoint that what was it? It's like thirty years later, the Bo Derek scene and Tommy Boy. <laughs> all right, she comes out of the water and it's the same thing. It's like God, Dad, she's like a ten. <laughs> 
<laughs> but um, yeah, so I, I watched it really with fresh eyes uh, a couple of weeks ago. And I'm I'm pretty good at putting my mindset into the '80s. You know, I I, I don't think I've actually put my mindset out of the '80s for quite a time. <laughs> so it wasn't hard for me to make the adjustment when watching the movie. And I I appreciated the movie. I appreciated all of the the beats that it was hitting. I appreciated the performances. I appreciated the banter, like the dialogue, and I appreciated the novelty of that dialogue in its time. Like for its time, these characters the way they spoke and their relationships with each other and the, and the, and the sarcastic tones that they had uh, was kind of novel for the time. Like, you know, there weren't a lot of movies or mainstream movies that had those types of characters at least represented well or done in such a way that appealed to such a mass audience. And they were just, you know, charming people. You know, Liza Minnelli was great. She was great. Absolutely fantastic. Yes, I mean, and this was like peak Liza Minnelli, I think. You know, she'd done Cabaret, and she's obviously been in the spotlight for decades, you know, being the, the daughter of, of um, what's her name there? Judy Garland. Yeah, she was just great like that, and she she played that, that type of person very well. That well, She was a shoplifter. She was introduced to the movie as a shoplifter, and that's where uh, Arthur meets, what's her name in the movie? We're not going to know because we're stupid. Come on, man. Because Let's I'm get with it. No, I got it. I got it. It's her Her name was uh, Linda. Linda. Linda Marola. Yeah. We're, we're jumping around as we normally do, but let's be concise. Please, okay. Jacques, what is the plot of Arthur? Before we get that, you said, you know, it's an 80s movie. It did come out in 1981. Let me ask you, is it an 80s movie or late 70s? And when did the 80s really start? I mean, that's, and I know it's sort of 1980, dumbass, but you know what I mean? It's like things bleed over. Um, this was one of the, I call this the brown era of the 80s. Right. Like everything had that sort of earth tone kind of way about it. Like everything was wood grain, you know, like Atari's, the wood grain Atari's, yes. like that kind of vibe. Like everything had a, a brownish feel to it. And this was in the brown era of the of the American 1980s. Uh, so it did have a lot of holdovers from the late 70s that sort of, actually, I think in a way this kind of ushered in that sort of like Reagan era 80s that prosperity, do you know what I mean? Like that yeah, sort of right. like laissez-faire kind of attitude. Like we're doing well, everything's good, you know, and we can be snarky and stuff like that, you know. But the, yeah, there's some downtroddenness, but that's okay because you know there are rich people over here that'll make us feel better for some reason. Um, <laughs> it's now you also said that it was an it was a grown-up movie. Those lines always blur for me. I only saw my dad like once a year for a week to two weeks. And most of that time was spent literally either watching HBO by myself because he worked nights and slept in the days. So I watched all these things, you know, unsupervised because that was one of the very few things that made like going to Buffalo okay for a week or two. And my dad used to love to go to the movies. And he was going to go to the movies he was going to go to, whether he had his then 12-year-old. Like I said, I saw Blazing Saddles in the theater with my dad. I saw Arthur in, like, the few good memories I have of him, lots of them, you know, looking back. We're sitting next to him in silence. You know, you know, type, you know, what little, what little 
parenting modeling he did was completely wrong or was it completely right because uh i remember seeing this in the movie as a kid and just laughing hysterically and partly stuff most 12 year olds shouldn't have gotten you you know being a comedy nerd growing up and and kind of getting that stuff but the whole vibe of it right you know he was just a guy born into phenomenal wealth who literally had nothing to do except he had everything but love. And so his parents, or his father in particular, was a magnate, and he was setting up his son to marry the daughter of another wealthy magnate. So it was sort of like an arranged marriage, essentially. It was. It was an and, arranged marriage. And his grandfather before him, like, yes, his father was a business tycoon, but he was like maybe the fourth in line because his his grandmother, who's a you know one of the main characters, when she talks to him, it's like, yeah, she was part of an arranged marriage two generations earlier between this rich family and that rich family, and her parents were part of arranged marriage. I mean, they are generational from the Mayflower type old wealth. money, right? And they wanted him to marry into uh, you know and a woman who very nice woman. Very sympathetic, you know, very open to it just being an arranged marriage. You know, she made, she made it really clear you can completely fuck me over and fuck around on me, but you still have to marry me anyways. Mm-hmm. And do you know, do you remember how much money he stood to lose if he did not marry? Oh, God. $750 million. And that's 1980s. Right. I think somebody did uh, the math with like inflation. That would have been like $3 billion. Oh, okay. Yeah. (laughs) Infinite. Yeah. Plus one. Speaking of money, the movie, it's not low budget. Oh. But it was a $7 million budget, which I don't know when movies got stupid as far as you can't make a movie for under $100 million type thing. But it did. It made almost $100 million in the box office. And here it is. You know, 40 years later, we're talking about it. It's still being sold and repurposed. And, you know, like you said, they they made um, a reboot of it. But, yeah, it was a huge smash. It was like probably one of the first big, gigantic movies of the 80s. And I don't know if it was rated R. Uh, No, it was rated PG. Okay. Because so I mean, my dad wasn't the worst person taking a twelve-year-old me. Yeah, it didn't have boobies. It didn't have. Um, I don't think maybe it had the F word. Uh, yeah. So Dudley Moore plays Arthur Bach. You know, he's a rich kid, and uh, he copes with his nothingness by drinking uh, to excess. And when he's drinking to excess, we see him. You know, at the beginning of the movie, in a limousine, yelling out to a couple of prostitutes, <laughs> um, one of which he picks up and takes to dinner. And um, it's the other weird. One gives her a hundred dollars because she came in second place. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So they go and to the, yeah. Go ahead. Wait, that prostitute because it's a great line. That prostitute asks his driver, "You know, is there something wrong with him?" <laughs> and this guy loves Arthur. He's like, "You have no idea." <laughs> you know, it's yeah. such a great exchange. Was it? Uh, is it Bert? It's it's Bitterman or something. Bitterman, yes, Bitterman, yeah. Okay. Um. So yeah, he he's great. But then like they go to dinner and he's stumbling through and he runs into his uncle and aunt at the fancy restaurant and the aunt expresses, you know, her distaste for his uh, his demeanor, you know, being out, outwardly drunk and you know he feels a little shame. But then he goes back to his table with his prostitute, <laughs> his hooker uh, date, and uh, she says like a. It's a weird little exchange, you know. She 
explains like how her mom died when she was six and her father raped her when he was 12. And Arthur's reply was, so you had six good years there. (laughs) (laughs) Um, The exchange with her aunt, it's still the opening scene when he's explaining, introduces her as a princess of a very, very small country. It's like Rhode Island could beat the crap out of it in an hour. It's like (laughs) they just have the whole thing carpeted. uh, (laughs) And then the next scene, it's the next morning. Her being handed a wad of cash and, you know, walking out of the mansion. Being shown out by Hobson, his butler, right? His butler, manservant, mentor, his, you know, his everything. His, like his, his, his surrogate father, really, it, in a way. 100%, right. Yeah. I guess when they were writing this movie, the idea was that when Arthur was drinking, he would have the funny lines. But when Arthur was sober, Hobson would have all the funny lines. So that's where all the wisecracking uh, yucks come from Hobson during the like, the, the, the day scenes, the, the, the morning scenes. Right. Um, do you know of some of the lines that uh, Hobson espouses that you could quote right now? It's one of those things where when we talk about on the podcast a lot, some of the things we don't have a choice in saying every single time, because we go to the libraries a lot, and every time, like, my wife or, you know, the boys will be like, you know, oh, this book has to go back. I like pretend to be dying. It's like, there are three books. You need to take them back to the library and then <laughs> and then die, you know. Or the scene, I'm trying to get the dialogue right, where Arthur is, you know, driving his sports car around the track and he's telling Hobson about, you know, how empty he feels inside. And it's like he asks him to remove his helmet so he can properly slap him in the face. <laughs> and just, can you remove your helmet? Why? Just just for a moment, please. And he's like, okay. And he slaps him and lays into him. Just absolutely. Listen to you, little shit. You know, it's like you have absolutely everything. You're asked to do so little. It's like, you know, it's like you make these choices in life. And like you said, he was, he was his father, you know, he was, but he was also a real friend. I mean, there's, there's nobody in this movie who loved anybody more than Hobson loved Arthur and vice versa. And my favorite scene with him is when he goes to her apartment, when he goes to like Liza Minnelli's apartment with the dress so that she can crash the engagement party of all things he he's encouraging her you know it's like the entire family you know looks down on this you know working class girl from queens the peasant she is and hobson knows this is arthur's one shot at ever being happy with anything we're kind of getting ahead of ourselves here oh yeah yeah, linearly so basically so the line but the the line that she says is like you know this is not a tie you can steal you know what mm -hmm. i mean and it's like that line i've always loved from him there's a relationship where that, that that kind of surprises arthur out of nowhere he sees a woman uh while he's shopping at a like a saks fifth avenue kind of type store and a woman steals a tie and he witnesses this. And then as when she leaves, Arthur notices that the security from the store is going after her. And so they decided to follow the security. And they do a scene out on the corner, you know, not too far from the store. The security guy stops uh, Linda and says, can I see what's in your purse? Because I think, you, you know, you, you, I saw you take something and put it in your purse. And then all of a sudden, you know, it's the meet cute where 
Um, Arthur rushes in and says, oh, there you are, and pretends to know her, and did you get the tie I bought, or did you get the tie I wanted, or whatever, and then offers, you know, oh, I forgot, I'm so sorry she walked out and I was going to pay, and, you know, kind of bails her out. And she goes right along with it. Like, she's like, you know, improv, yes, and, you know, <laughs> and she's, you know, 100% committed to the uh, to the scene. And then from there, he offers to drive her home, you know, have Bitterman drive her home. Just uh, and there's that also that part. It's like she doesn't want to get out of the car in her neighborhood because she wants her nosy neighbor or landlady to see her get out, of, her get out of this like ritzy Rolls Royce with a with a chauffeur. But, but then, but, but back up for a second. It's yes. like when they watch her stealing the the tie, and Arthur's like, "It's the perfect crime. Women don't wear ties." <laughs> he, he was just enthralled with the whole process. Like, like it's one of those things. It's like. Oh, peasants use silverware like we do, just not nice silverware. You know, he was enthralled with her before he he met her. You know, but that was that's one of the lines I love when he's like, "It's the perfect crime." And her outfit is like come over the top garish. Like it's she's wearing a cowboy hat, like a pink cow. She looked like uh, Maxine Waters. <laughs> I mean. But um, I guess that was also the appeal of her character is that she just, you know, she dressed flashy and and, uh, she stole the tie for her father who was unemployed, who he lives, she lived with. And they live in like, what, like a two bedroom apartment and in Queens. Maybe you can talk a little bit about their relationship. Her dad, and I'm not going to look up the actor's name. I will. No, he is. You can look up whatever his name is. He is the human embodiment of Barney Rubble. <laughs> he is a, he's a taller Barney Rubble, a character actor who, honestly, when you look him up, I guarantee there's a hundred movies. You'll be like, oh, my God, right. He was in that. He was in that. His name is Barney Martin. Is it really? Yes. So Linda's dad is, uh, you know. Oh, he's um, Seinfeld's dad. Yeah, he's uh, Morty Seinfeld. See, there you go. And what else has he he, he been in? As you quickly run. Oh down God, um, I don't know. He was in. The, he was in the producers. He was Gehring in the producers. Right. <laughs> he was in Arthur, and uh, he was in the movie Hot Stuff from 1979. <laughs> so he loves his daughter. His daughter loves him, and yeah, he's a down and out. Just, just I, I forget what profession he's in, but you know, I mean, the 70s was a rough time in New York. I mean, it's not like it is now, you know, by by any stretch. But he does. He really, you know, loves his daughter. And again, getting ahead is, you know, when she's getting ready to go out on her first date and she's like, he's asking her, it's like, what does he do for a living? Nothing. Oh, another unemployed loser. Great. He's a millionaire. You have my permission to marry him. (laughs) Instantly. Yeah. So, uh, So let's talk about that love at first sight kind of thing with Arthur and Linda. I, I thought, as I was watching the movie, and maybe I wasn't watching it closely enough, but as the movie progressed, I felt that, I don't know, they didn't spend a lot, like, they go to like a carnival together or something, right? If I remember, right. like that was their date or part of their date. And um, I don't know, there, there seemed to be a love that was brewing there according to the script that I didn't see come across on the screen. It was sort of like, you know, he loved her because she was, Everything that this girl that he was going to supposed to marry wasn't, and there was an attraction there, but I didn't see what really drew him to her, and I didn't see that relationship evolve to a point where they both fell in love with each other. Maybe I'm I've obviously missed something, so please fill in the blanks no, for me. 
I know. I mean, it's 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 exactly that. It's like the woman that he was supposed to marry, Susan Johnson. Same thing. Has never worked a day in her life. Was raised to be a Stepford wife, supporting of her patriotic father, and you know, be the absolute epitome of wealth and privilege and entitlement. And Arthur just never felt alive in that world. I don't want to jump ahead, but it wasn't until he had to take care of Hobson that he felt any kind of purpose in the world. You know, every day was a Friday night to him. You know what I mean? It was kind of like the ending of The Good Place, sort of. Or like where everybody was like, yes, you know, yes. that when you have everything you ever wanted, you can be completely fucking miserable. Or when you have like nothing to nothing challenging you. But for her, I don't think she really cared that he was filthy loaded. I think she liked him because he was funny, because he was sweet and charming, you know, despite, you know, all of these things, you know, from the very get go. I mean, he didn't judge her for stealing the tie. He liked the fact that her father and her lived in close quarters and had a real relationship. You know, it's true. It's like he had everything in the world but a family who loved him for him. And and that was the attraction. And yeah, the movie didn't fo- I mean it was a comedy. They weren't, you know, they weren't trying to build this great love story. They they tried to make up for that. I, I think the same thing, I think seven years later, like you talked about in the sequel, then they're like, Oh, let's throw a lot of heart in this and family in this and all that. You know, but for this it was just how can we get him to the next drunken funny line or funny scene, you know? Yeah, there's a scene where he gets loaded, shocker, but then he goes to her apartment at like three in the morning. Surprisingly, they're up at three in the morning and the father answers the door and he stumbles in and, you know, she comes out in a a robe and I guess, uh, how did that transpire again? There was just like, he could just kind of almost like passed out on the floor, right? And he, didn't he fall, didn't he stay, like sleep over? Like, didn't he sleep on the couch or am I misremembering that part? He went to the neighbor's house first. Uh-huh. The scene starts, I don't know if they were up, but they heard Arthur went to the wrong apartment first. And he's knocking on the door and this battle axe of a woman with the, you know, the hair curlers in and the netting over the hair curler. And, you know, her husband is like, you know, at the door and she's screaming at Arthur for how dare you, blah, blah, blah. You know, oh, I'm trying to find Linda. And her husband's like, oh, they live they're next door at. And he says the address and the wife starts hitting the husband and like, you know, he's a stranger. Why would you, Bob? And Arthur is in a tuxedo. You know, Arthur was always in a tuxedo. Like, you know, he's wearing a tuxedo. How bad can he be? <laughs> and then he gets over. And it's one of my favorite – it's one of my two favorite lines for the movies, and there's a few other great ones. But as soon as her father opens the door, because don't you just hate Perry's wife? <laughs> the woman who like no you know no hi i'm arthur it's like he just opened the door like well there was you hate perry's wife right and then he's, there's also a bit where you know outside of their apartment in the wrong house it's like this you know uh kind of like a vestibule kind of area and he walks by an old like baby carriage yeah. And it's like, you know, he pretends there's a baby inside and he's like, sorry, I had to see that. And then he like pulls the pram <laughs> cover yeah. down. Yeah, right. Because in the hallway of that. Of their house, yeah. Uh, and then so to talk about the love story. So Arthur 
agree to marry Susan and he's coming to tell Linda and that's when he, that he he loves her and basically he's like look I want to take I still want to take care of you and and she's like I don't fucking want your money like I'm not I'm not you know this halfway you know thing it's like you're either with me or you're not with me and if you're not with me then I don't want your money you know so she she loved him for him you know what I mean? And, and she, then it cuts to like the next morning, her consoling her father was <laughs> crying all broken up about it, you know, because it was their chance of getting out of like poverty and stuff like that. Yes. And, he just lost the lottery. He was off by one number, that kind of thing. Know? But we're going to go way back to the beginning when he first goes. And it's a formality to he's not going to ask Susan's father for his daughter's hand in marriage. Technically, he is. It's an arranged it's an arranged marriage. And this is the arranged asking the father for the hand in marriage. But it's his basically saying this is how things are going to go. Arthur, he shows up hammered. The father doesn't like that. The father is a big foreboding personality and, and just physically stature. It's a, the guy's very big. And I think as soon as he walks in, like, you know, the, the father has like hunting trophies all around and there's a moose head on the wall. Like, you must have really hated that moose. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, that whole family was awful. He loved Linda. Uh, he loved the fact that Linda loved her dad, that she's stealing a tie, that she's out stealing, but not for herself. You know, she's stealing. And, and you know, the dad's like, great, a tie. I don't have a job. But maybe someday I'll wear the tie. But, you know, uh, but that whole relationship and even his grandmother, who clearly loved him, told him, it's like, look, you have to marry her. I know Susan's awful. I know her father's awful, but you have to do this. And fuck around on the side, you know, just, just, you know, that, that was the, that was the matriotic advice getting from grandma. Uh, and again, you know, uh, the, the team around him, his driver really cared about him. You know, Hobson really loved him and Linda, everybody else is pretty much an awful person. You know? <laughs> yeah. So then there, it leads up to the engagement party. It's a big swanky, you know, five-star gala, I think he's wearing a white tux, right? If I'm not yep. mistaken. And Dudley Moore is an accomplished pianist. So he's coerced into playing the piano. So he's playing a piano about basically ragging on Susan, right? In front of everybody. <laughs> yeah. And, um, you know, of course he's drunk. And Linda shows up. At the behesting of Hobson. At the behest of Who Hobson. gives her the dress to show up and that would get her into the party. Right. So finally... Arthur notices her and walks over to her and says, oh, fancy seeing you here. And she's like, yeah, you know, I was in the neighborhood and it took two trains, three buses and a cab. (laughs) (laughs) Eliza Minnelli is a decent actress. The way she delivers that line. Have you ever seen her in in Arrested Development? The best. Oh, my God. The relationship between her and who's the actor like the. Oh, uh, Tony Hale. All, completely on the spectrum type thing, you yeah. know what I mean? But their relationship is, its it might be my favorite part of the show. Yeah, so uh, Liza Minnelli's a gem. And, and I think, yeah, her personality comes out. And that's actually kind of where uh, they break off and they go to the stable. That's sort of like where they kind of, I guess, they they get a little bit more 
in depth into what they want out of each other in their relationship, if I'm not mistaken. And then all of a sudden, Susan, in her Stepford wife kind of like passive aggressive way, or maybe just sort of naive way, is looking naive for way. Yeah, looking for Arthur, you know, worried about him or just like, you know, seeing where she and it's oh, well, who's this? And um Linda has to put on this act that um, he needed. I, I guess there was a relationship uh, with friends with her, her father, husband. Yeah. Oh, right, right. Who was sick? Yes, like like mentally sick, or you know, blah blah blah. And Arthur's helping support the family because he had a sick child. And- yes, right. The, the whole right, the whole the whole uh, yarn there. And she buys it, of course, because she's trusting. There is clearly like a um, something where Arthur wants to leave. Susan for Linda and um, doesn't know how to go about doing it. But with that going on, there's also Hobson's health on the decline. Hobson is sent to the hospital and Arthur shows up and um, yeah, it puts his money to good use. You know, billionaires to the rescue, as it were. Um, right. right. He, doesn't, he, doesn't, he doesn't just like dote on him night and day. He, he stays with him. He stays with him and he transforms the room. Yep. Like he brings in like a four post bed, you know, he brings, right. real furniture. Yes. The whole he night. Sleeps, he sleeps there at the hospital, has real food brought in from his favorite restaurants and all this stuff. And he sneaks you know, in. Yeah, he snuck in like because he pays the orderly to sneak in the food. To sneak in the real food. Um, yeah. And, 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 and he does. He literally, you know, grows up overnight type thing. Several weeks pass, you know, Hobson passes away. And it's it's time for the wedding, you know. You know, one of my favorite scenes is where, you know, the wedding day, like Arthur is in a bar just shit-faced and just some other guys at the bar talking about and the Russians. They're teaching their kids to, you know, and, and our kids are just learning to dance. And he's – and Arthur's like buys everybody around and goes, where do you get all the money for all these – all these drinks. I was, I'm a dancing <laughs> And then he has to go to the wedding, but he goes and he tells Linda that, you know, you know, and he's drunk and he shows up at the restaurant that she works at and tells her that, you know, he wants to spend the rest of her life with her. And, and, um, and then shows up at the wedding and then shows up at the church. <laughs> yes. Yeah. There's a little bit of an altercation backstage, if you will, uh, where, there's like the bridal party and Arthur knocks on the door and he sees Susan before, you know, in the dress before the, the altar, which is taboo or whatever. And um, he comes in and he's kind of low speaking and slurred speech and he's trying to get out what he wants to say to her. And he's like, I don't I don't know. Yeah, I don't I don't And then she, you know, Kind of freaks out. She literally yells like a petulant child, Daddy! And then the father comes in and who boy. Um, but at the same time, Linda, she leaves her post at, at, the, uh, at uh, diner. The, the diner and uh, runs to the, uh, the, the, the wedding, which I guess is what, right down the street or whatever. Well, it's New York. You're not a big town. Exactly. And uh, so she goes to the wedding and finds herself in the same place as Arthur and Arthur's would-be father-in-law. Although Arthur isn't upright for some reason. He gets knocked on his ass. Crashes into a table and things go flying and the father turns around. 
Yep. Go ahead. Tell it. This is this is my favorite thing. So I want you to retell. So yes. Yeah, so Linda goes to 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 help Arthur, and they're crouched down on the floor, and you know he's on his ass, and she's you know knelt down beside him, and they both look up and they see the father-in-law coming at them, and um, about to come at them, but he first uh, goes to the table where there's a big hunk of cheese with a big knife in it, and um, this is sort of like a callback to something that he, I guess, admitted to in the early part of the movie that he killed a man with a knife, right? Who came into his apartment when he was like 10 years old and he... Yeah, right. So this is sort of... Porn. Yeah, this is sort of like a, a, a revisiting of that incident. So he goes to grab the knife and, and I'm not going to do the line justice, so I'm going to let you deliver the line. And Arthur looks up at him and he says... He's taking the knife out of the cheese. <laughs> Do you think he wants a piece of cheese? (laughs) (laughs) And, uh, yeah, so they get out of that hairy situation. They got out of the hairy situation because as the bride's dad is closing in, knife is being lifted over his head. Arthur's feeble old, your 70-year-old grandmother comes in and slaps the dad in the face and says, cut the shit, Bert. (laughs) (laughs) And then... Cuts to, you know, it's outside, you know, cuts back. The great thing is it cuts back and forth to all the well-dressed aristocratic people in the church, like hearing, you know. uh, The crashing and the booming and the the swearing. You know, it's like uh, Linda at one point had like referred to Liza Minnelli. It's like, oh, is this your slut? And Arthur yells, slut! <laughs> and the whole it cuts to the church, like all looking over, and then you hear the crash when he goes into the table. But then you know, uh, people are filing out of the church, and you see Arthur talking to his grandmother, who basically tells him flat out, "This is it. You do this, and you're cut off, and that is it." And um, you don't hear the rest of the conversation. It cuts back to. You know, Liza, who's talking to Bitterman, like, you know, you know, standing next to his driver and then walks over to her and says, you know, yeah, well, you know, I told her no. You know, it's like, oh, OK. And then Liza Minnelli's like, all right, well, this is going to be our life and we'll be poor, but we'll be together. And it's like, you know, it's like I, I kept the money, but I told her, you know, uh, he's like, I'm she stupid wanted to come to lunch with her. And I said, no, you're going to make me a grilled cheese sandwich. <laughs> I'm crazy, but I'm not stupid kind of thing. <laughs> And then it's a, uh, it's a very nice, like, you know, uplifting ending in the credits roll and whatever. So it's like, yeah, he got his cake. He, he got to have his cake and eat it eventually. Yep. He got he got his cake and a slut. Yes. Wait, <laughs> so, uh, no, I, it is. It's one of those movies where, I mean, yeah, some of the themes still hold up. I mean, it's just, you know, the the, the thing that we talk about a lot, it's it's – not that he was drinking and driving; it's he's drinking and driving, like at the same, and not like he's has a little beer. So he's full on tumbler. <laughs> yeah, rocking down. He's got the champagne bottle with the paper bag around it, just drinking and um, yeah, driving a very expensive car. Um, right. So some of the some of the tropes or some of the ideas don't hold up as well in a woke society that we live in now. But uh, you know. All in all, I could see how it was a cultural touchstone in cinema and, and, and pop culture. And part of that success is the, uh, the soundtrack of the movie itself. It, like the, the score was written by Burt Bacharach, uh, a holdover from you know, decades prior, but just a, you know, a, a musical genius. But then also Christopher Cross's Arthur's theme, 
the best that you can do. That song, Academy Award winning. Yes, Academy Award winning. And I think I mentioned on the last podcast that Liza Minnelli's then husband has a credit for that song and won an Academy Award because he wrote the line, when you get caught between the moon and New York City, the best that you can do is fall in love because he wrote that line literally in a plane, in a holding pattern at night over JFK Airport. And, it's a great uh, story. Yeah, And it, it's a great line. It is a great line. But Christopher Cross, I think, had, was sailing. He was already on the charts, and this was like yeah. the next step for him is to do this song. Yeah, that that whole thing was just like, uh, it was like a perfect storm of like, just like a happening. It was just like, yeah, you know. And I think it did sort of usher in that sort of blue-collar, white-collar comedy, you know, like right. Trading Places a couple of years later, which kind of also delve into that, you know, that Tale of Two Cities kind of thing. The have and have. Yeah, no, that's, that's like you said, you know, you referenced earlier, like it's, you know, it's not Shakespeare, but it's very... That's as old as time, you know, the marrying the class, you know, the class, isn't, isn't Romeo and Juliet They were star-crossed it- lovers, yeah, kind of thing, yeah. Yeah, right. was it Juliet, Well, they were feuding, like, from- they, were, they were feuding, I think there were two wealthy families that were just feuding with each other. I don't know, if, oh, okay. may, maybe I'm wrong, I don't know, I don't read Shakespeare. Read a book! Yeah, right. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I don't even see the movies. <laughs> exactly. If they made a video, video game, game yeah. adaptation. Yes. <laughs> Romeo and Juliet. Yeah. You'd 100% that motherfucker. Oh, yes. <laughs> right. Press X to drink poison. Um, <laughs> yeah, like a telltale version game. <laughs> yeah, right. How come they never made an Arthur video game? I wonder. You know, that's a, there's an untapped market. So my takeaway from Arthur, from as a, as a 42-year-old guy that sees it for the first time in 2020, I like the movie, uh, but it didn't, like hit me because I, I think for the most part, like all those mannerisms and lines and stuff, like they, I guess if you view them on HBO or some sort of like cable schedule in the eighties and nineties, like if you rewatch that movie over and over again and you're drawn to it, like you're going to memorize the lines, you're going to, you know, be a huge fan of that kind of movie. But for some reason it just didn't, it fell on deaf ears for me. I yeah, was just but, a little like, too young again, for it. You said that. I mean, it's like, you know, but it, it circles out of the HBO lineup by 1990. Yeah. You know what I mean? And at that point, you're still 11, you know, 12, you know, type thing. And again, for me, you know, having seen it in the theater with my dad, you know, having seen it so many times on HBO in the summer, because that's all there was to do those two weeks we were there. It's funny. It's one of the... The movies that my sister and I both love, like there's not a lot of crossovers with our taste. <laughs> you know, my Girl Scout coordinator, Sunday school teaching, you know, you know, sister and I don't, you know, uh, see a lot of the same things eye to eye. But that's something that we talk about, you know, that don't you hate Perry's wife is her that or taking the knife out of cheese. Those two lines are probably one and one A of her favorite lines in any movie ever, you right. know? But yeah, she loves that movie too. And again, it was one of those movies where one year it was the second feature of the double header every time we went to the drive-in. And then the next year it was the first feature, you know, that yeah. people would stagger into. So I probably saw that on the big screen 10 to 12 times between age 13 and 14 and saw it on – and again, it was one of those things that's like, even if I didn't love it, you watched it because it was on TV and there was nothing else on TV at 11 o'clock at night in Buffalo in the summer, you know? And 
But yeah, I mean, it's, it's it's still fun. You didn't feel cheated by your two hours of watching it. No, it was a very nice, tidy movie. Um, a couple of trivia facts before we wrap up. So, so Dudley Moore was part of a comedy duo with uh, a man named Peter Cook. And apparently, part of the falling out was that Peter Cook became kind of um, kind of an alcoholic, I guess. I think that's what it caused part of the falling out. And apparently, he based his character of Arthur on Peter Cook. Oh. Supposedly. Another fun piece of trivia. Dudley Moore was not the first choice. This was written as an American tale, essentially, for an American family. You know, you're probably wondering why Arthur has uh, an American father. I think they quickly abandoned the idea of Dudley Moore trying to do an American accent. He's like, no, I'm just going to play it as is, as I am, you know. But, I mean, there were other people that were supposedly tapped for the role, uh, including John Belushi. And that blew my mind. And John Belushi actually, I guess, turned it down because he didn't want to be typecast. Well, yeah, he's coming. I mean, was it 1980s, the Blues Brothers? So this is probably, this probably goes into production right as Blues Brothers is in the theater. And, you know, he's the fun-loving, happy drunk in that, too. So... Let's see, Carrie Fisher and Deborah Winger turned down the role of Linda. Wow. Um, yeah, that's before Empire. It was before Empire, but she was also in Blues Brothers. She was in Blues Brothers, and she was great. Yeah. What else? The bus scene where, like, when Liza Minnelli was supposed to get on a city bus after talking to Dudley Moore, she was supposed to get on a, you know, a bus and just go back home, and Liza Minnelli gets on the bus, and she looks back, you know, waiting for them to say cut or waiting for the bus to stop, and nothing happens. And she looks back, and the crew's laughing at her because she got on an actual city bus and not the movie That's bus. So great, which, might be one of my favorite production stories ever. Right, but uh, yeah, I thought those were just uh, some interesting points to 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 wrap up. Uh, we've got top five movie for you. Top ten. It's uh, top twenty-five because it goes yeah. back and forth. But right. I, I comedies. Mean, How about comedies? Yeah, it, it is. It's one of those ones. Same thing. Top twenty-five. Top twenty. Okay. Where. As soon as you said, oh, it's free, I'm like, oh, well, I don't own this. <laughs> you know, then I better watch it three times in the next two weeks. <laughs> um, yeah, and that's another thing we should mention is that if you are on HBO Now and HBO Go, um, you can download those apps and watch this movie, Arthur and Arthur 2, if you want, and a bunch of other stuff for free without a subscription. And that's how we got in. That's how I got on board. Again, you know, Arthur 2. You know, they tried to put a lot of heart into it. It's it's fine. The Russell Brand reboot with uh, Judy Dench is good. I, I like it. If I was on a flight and it was the in-flight movie, I wouldn't walk out on it. But I wouldn't, like, buy it and have it on my Apple TV and call you and say, hey, it's on the Apple TV. Watch it now. But it, it, it is. It's fun. He in that movie, however, is a recovering alcoholic. So he's not drinking in that movie, which is interesting. There is one really good scene in the reboot where he went out and got every movie car to show up at an event <laughs> from the Batmobile to the Ghostbuster machine to the mystery machine. So there's a line. Oh, nice. And it was like. And then they turn that into a Walmart commercial years later. Kit, right. <laughs> yeah. 
but yeah, it's a it's a really fun movie. It's one that I don't think. Oh, the boys are in the room. I better change this because people are drinking now. I mean, it's it's. It made sense also to cast Russell Brand as Arthur because you know he was that personality to begin with. You know, he was right. a druggie. You know, he was a British. He was you know uh, a party guy. So he kind of was in his own sense like a version of Arthur, you know, he came into wealth. He was, you know, he rags to riches guy, but when he became wealthy, he became a superstar. And so like, it sort of made sense like, Oh yeah, this should be a good fit. And then for, yeah, for some reason they fucked it up. I don't know. I don't, I know. don't know. how did it not do what did it bomb? I don't know if it did. I don't it think. Did okay. I think I'm sure it did okay. I think just critically it was like, man, eh, whatever, you know, like, but it's one of those things. It's so hard to remake. I mean, it's, it's considered a classic. It's I mean, lightning in a bottle. Right. It was 30 years later. It's still a cultural reference point for most people over 42. You know what I mean? But yeah, it's on, it's on, still on HBO. If anyone is accidentally hearing this, I suggest watching it for the first time or for the 50th time. I'm all in. Yeah. Thank and you it, for giving me the heads up on it. You're welcome. Yeah. So, and, and one more thing. Yeah. Dudley Moore's defining role and. I think I knew about Arthur through like references to Arthur on other shows like The Simpsons and, you know, right. and just like, what is this character? Who are they talking about? As a kid, I'm like, what, are, what is this? Oh, and then like I have to kind of do my research and find out, oh, it was a movie and it's about this. Oh, yeah, there's the promo for it. Okay. But, you know, I'm glad I watched it. I got it out of my system. And now I have to watch it at least, what, uh, 200 more times so that I can catch up with you <laughs> and we can start making... Um, you know, we can start talking in the Arthur quote language. Or you could spend your time doing something productive for once in your life and develop the Arthur video game. <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh-huh. where you got to drink so much to get to the next level and then you have to drive the car over the bridge. I don't know which bridge it is to get from Manhattan to Long Island. And I think I'll just play Grand Theft Auto 5 instead. You know, it's pretty much the same thing. I'll pretend I'm Arthur. It, does, it doesn't have the, how do you say, je ne sais quoi. Genesis, <laughs> <laughs> oh man! So yeah, and, and, and I guess it might it might take you back to your drinking days, doesn't it? I mean, no one. It, it, listen, there are a few things that are are tough to you know that come across the dashboard, you know, sort of speak. That uh, Tom Wait, it, it it is physically impossible to read a Veronica book while listening to Tom Wait and not drink. Um, this is also one of those things. The movie is more enjoyable three or four beers in. <laughs> right. It's kind of like watching a Seth Rogen movie high, you know? Yeah. 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 I, I would imagine. Right. <laughs> you know, I, I, I like those movies, but I'm like, yeah, I think I would have liked Pineapple Express more if I were still. <laughs> yeah. The collector's edition of Arthur comes with a martini glass. Like this. <laughs> At least that's the way I would have pitched it. Well, Thank you for indulging me on this. Uh, we should have just done a commentary on the movie. I, you know, I've suggested doing that, and you keep saying, no, you're stupid. No one wants that. But yet I listen to tons of podcasts where people do that. Plus, it gives me an excuse once this is over to hang out more. Nope, I love to come home, but Joe and I are doing a sideshow, doing commentary on uh, Gone with the Wind. <laughs> Director's cut. <laughs> Oh, you. All right. Well, thanks for uh, listening to our sideshow about Arthur. Uh, next sideshow will be about... Pacific Rim. Be, oh, God, <laughs> yes. I'm actually going to watch Pac- uh, Pacific Rim Job, which is a different kind of... <laughs> I don't know. It just showed up on my suggested movies. I don't know. <laughs> well done. <laughs> 
And that's I'm not one for the kids. I'm going to look that up to see if somebody made It's got to be, right? You know? Right. It's to watch it as a double feature, like right after Schindler's Fist. <laughs> oh, please. Why did you make that reference? Or a League of Their I'm Moan. not a good person. Uh, shoot. All right. Well, while Jacques looks up porn on his phone, <laughs> I will say uh, thank you for listening to Conorable Personnel's Sideshow about Arthur. Uh, until next year when we do another Sideshow, I say don't forget. Once in your life, you find her. Someone who turns your heart around and next thing you know, you're closing down the town. Wake up and it's still with you. Even though you left her way across town, wandering to yourself. Hey, what have I found? When you get caught between the moon and New York City. I know it's crazy, but it's true. If you get caught between the moon and New York City, the best that you can do, the best that you can do is fall in love. Arthur, he does as he pleases. All of his life, his masters drive him deep in his heart. He's just, he's just a boy. Living his life one day at a time and showing himself a pretty good time. He's laughing about the way they want him to be. When you get caught between the moon and New York City, I know it's crazy, but it's true. If you get caught between the moon and New York City, the best that you can do, the best that you can do is fall in love. When you get caught between the moon and New York City, I know it's crazy. But it's true.